Hey everyone, we recorded this episode yesterday and I went to come edit it today. A good bit of my audio got distorted and sounded really weird during my deck recap. Um, I'm talking about my team's deck. So I actually went through and just redid that uh, for you all. That way it wouldn't be messed up. But because of that, we did lose some of the middle part of the podcast with Trey being involved. Um, so you're going to unfortunately miss out on some of Trey's insight and stuff like that. And I'm sorry, there just wasn't a way to easily get all of Trey's uh, comments in and have it fit in with my conversation. I basically have to recreate my responses to Trey, which doesn't feel organic. So instead, um, there's a bit where it's just going to be me for 20 minutes. And after that, you'll pick up the show with where we were at the end of the normal recap. So I'm sorry for the inconvenience um, for all y'all. But I just want to let you know that's why it will sound sort of different at a certain point in the podcast and goes back to sound another way. There wasn't an easy fix, and I'm sorry, but I hope you're able to enjoy this episode. You're listening to the Even Odds Podcast on the Constructed Criticism Network. Here are your hosts, Mason and Trey, and thank you for rolling with us. everybody and welcome to the 22nd episode of the even odds podcast i am your top four host mason and i'm joined by classic competitor trey top 32 classic competitor trey. oh wow i'm sorry i, I completely forgot <laughs> I, I once you queued for the classic i was just so happy for you that you know it didn't really matter where you land you're just happy to be there you know you know who didn't forget Number 33 competitor, Dylan Hand. <laughs> oh, my God. Do you want to tell that story real quick? That's so absurd what you did. I still can't believe you did that. <laughs> yeah, so Mason was playing in top four, and Dylan Hand uh, took my spot where I was watching him. Uh, he just stepped in because I stepped away for a second. And I stepped back up and just tapped him on the shoulder, and I said, Hey, man, I feel like I should apologize to you since uh, you were 33rd in the classic for Legacy. And he's like, Were you 32nd? I was like, Yep. <laughs> that's it <laughs> and then he's like it happens i said can we still be friends and he's like yeah i guess so all right i still don't know why he did that but that's where we're at with life so yeah so that's fine yeah, we have an exciting show ahead of you uh if you didn't hear uh i got top four at the scg this past weekend in cincinnati so we're gonna be talking about lessons learned in our experience from cincinnati Trey didn't get quite that far, but he still has some stuff that he learned from the event, so it's going to be an exciting episode. But first, got to give a shout-out to our newest patrons. Trey, we had three new patrons joined this week. Are you excited about that? So excited. What's the, well, who wouldn't be excited? Who wouldn't be excited? I'll tell you who wouldn't be excited. People who don't get to interact with us in the Discord because they're not patrons. All those people are not excited. But we want to give a thank you to Andrew, uh, Holden, and Corey. Thank you so much for joining the patron. A Patreon. It means a lot. The show will always be free, but your support helps us do more with it. So, thank you for that. And now, for the way we get the real money, which is Wayfinder Travel Agency. That's right. Wayfinder Travel Agency is back with the answer to all your summer blues. Are you overworked? Stressed out? Just ready for a break? Are you ready to escape to your exotic island paradise but just can't bear the cost? Then you'll love the newest offering from Wayfinder Travel Agency. It's the Is It an Island Paradise Home Conversion Kit. The wacky is it scientists have done the exhaustive research and electro-nearing it to ensure that this inflatable island backyard conversion kit will give you the kind of sensation that you went on a vacation. It's recommended that you set up the is it an island paradise home conversion kit, then drive around town for about four hours before returning to your inflatable getaway. It will give you the maximum I took a trip sensation. The is it an island paradise home conversion kit from Wayfinder Travel Agency. Was that even a joke? Who can tell? I can't, <laughs> uh, you know, but Wayfinder Travel Agency, that it really does mean a lot. And it's just the affordable way to have a vacation, really. Yeah, it's easy to install and it's easy to care for. And it's mostly waterproof. Mostly. That's right. But we're going to go on to one quick uh, perk here of being a patron. That's the Patreon call-in question. So let's roll that clip. This is Tim. With the Mythic Invitational rapidly approaching, there's been a lot of focus on the best-of-one format recently in the Magic community. 
I'm curious what you guys think about the format, both of the current metagame and its health, and where it can go in the future. Does it have legs to stick around for the long haul? Uh, thanks for taking my question. Bye. All right, Tim, thank you for the question. So, yeah, Trey, what do you think about the duo standard format? So if you don't know, Tim kind of mentioned it briefly there, but the Mythic Invitational, which is, should be going on right now when this episode is live for you, uh, you pick two best-of-one decks. You bring two decks with you that don't uh, that are best-of-one, and then you randomly get the first one, then you play the second one, and then for game three, you pick whichever deck you want the most. So, Trey, what do you think about that format? Yeah, I think it's an interesting format. Like, it, it's somewhat similar to the way that Hearthstone tournaments are done, right? Where uh, this is a little bit different in the sense that your opponent doesn't, like, strike a deck and then you select one. But it has a similar kind of feel to it overall. And the one time that you and I went to a Hearthstone tournament, like, I liked playing that type of a format just because it was a different way to experience the game. And it was a different type of strategizing as to what it is that you were going to do um, when making your deck selections. Because instead of trying to build a sideboard to interact, you're, like, trying to, like, level people on, like, what decks you're going to end up with. And it becomes an interesting dynamic of, of having to think about the approach to the tournament. Yeah, I was going to actually say that I think they should adopt Hearthstone's model of, I believe it's called uh, King of the Hill. Not There's Last Hero Standing and King of the Hill for Hearthstone. I can't remember which one is the one I'm about to describe. But basically, you bring four decks, and then you show them to your opponent. So in Hearthstone, you just show the class, but in this situation, we need to show the deck or something. Um, and then they ban one deck, and then you queue a deck up, and when you win with that deck, you're not allowed to play with it anymore. Yeah, it's weird because, like, with Hearthstone, right, like, because you just have the the hero, right, like, they don't necessarily know the archetype, like, when they're striking a deck, like, they can guess based on what the popular decks are for the metagame at the time. Like, you know, at the time that we did it, Quest Rogue was everywhere, so if you had a rogue deck, like, likely that was Quest Rogue. But you yeah. could have had some other kind of deck. And so I don't know how you would do that with the, like, magic equivalent. Because, like, normally you would either have to, like, give a list or you would have to communicate the archetype, which would give people more information as far as, like, making a decision to strike a deck. Um, and so that does reduce a little bit of the dance that you get to do with Hearthstone some. Because there were some people, like, at the tournament that we went to where they had, like, some rogue decks. Like, they had some weird stuff. Like, Well, that's what I did. My, my Warlock was a control deck instead of the Zoo, which was really popular at the time. So when people thought they banned my warrior, they thought they banned all my control decks, but I had one left. Right, exactly. And if you had to yeah. like tell people exactly what your archetypes were for magic, then that would at least reduce that bit of gamesmanship that you can get away with with Hearthstone. And you know, maybe they ended up with trying to make the decision on it doing random because there's not an effective way to like shorthand communicate that information to your opponent without giving them all of the information. Maybe. Maybe the best way to do it is just show them your mana base. Like, here are my four mana bases. Like, Sam Black, like, proposed this uh, on the pro points. And I thought it was kind of awkward at the time. But if you do Hearthstone style, it makes a lot of sense, I think, to just be like, here are my four mana bases. So, like, for Modern, for example, it'd be like, oh, I have a Celestial Colonnade mana base. This is probably blue-white control, right? But it could be the blue-white mid-range deck. Yeah, I guess that's fair. Like, it would still leave you some options there, like, to, to you know, mess with people's heads. Yeah. Like, if you had, like, a 21-land red deck, it's like, okay, that's probably an aggro deck, but it could be, like, a greedy mid-range deck, you know, or a slightly bigger red deck, for example. So, you know, you could do different things with that. I, I don't particularly think the way they're doing it is perfect, but I also think it's a showcase event and not... While it has so much money on the line, it's really just a statement like, hey, we're going to put money into magic going forward. And, like, look at this awesome product we have. And that's why they're doing it like this, I think. Yeah, and I think it's still going to be fun. Um, one of the things that I do like about this kind of structure for an event is that it does promote, like, meme decks. Like, you have some incentive to just have some wacky stuff that's hard to interact with that might, people might not expect. And that doesn't happen all the time when you have your traditional magic structure tournaments. Yeah, like, Dovin's Acuity, by its nature, can't really be a 2 out of 3 deck. But in best of one, having access to your sideboard is something that no one else gets. And, like, you can afford to be a deck that has really no win condition. Right. And so, uh, you know, I like the idea of having something and some kind of tournaments that happen on a big stage that are happening that promote people just doing silly stuff. Yeah. We're just, maybe not even silly, but out of the box of, like, how normal Magic plays. I'll be curious to see how Twitch Shy interacts with that. Because I don't think Dovin Acuity Mirrors 
are going to be the most exciting thing for most people, but neither are Fatigue Warrior and people still watch Hearthstone. So we'll see. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, watching people slowly grind someone else's deck into dust is the type of thing that I like to sign up for. Well, you might be in luck this weekend. So check that out at twitch.tv slash magicthegathering, I think is what it's going to be. It's going to be pretty exciting. Uh, Trey, real quick before I go off, who do you want to have win the Invitational? Go. Uh, LSV. Autumn. Way to pick the wrong answer. Cedric's going to beat LSV. Have you not seen the Twitter beef? I have really (laughs) enjoyed the wrestling uh, back and forth that's going up uh, leading to this event. Yeah, the Ultimate Guard LSV Sucks uh, post was pretty great. So (laughs) I'm excited for the future of more heal interaction in Magic. But speaking of interactions in Magic, let's hop right into SCG Sensei since we have a lot to talk about this weekend. Thank you for the question, Tim. And if you want to send in a question like that, and I'll do it in order talking about it next time, you can go to patreon.com slash evenoddspod and become a patron of $5 or more. So, Trey, let's start off with your experience. So where did, what decks did your team land on? Who was your team? All that kind of stuff. Let's go over that real quick for yeah. SCG Sensei. Sure. Uh, I was in the standard seat. I played Mono Blue Tempo. Um, I teamed with James Hess and Ellison Berryhill, um, you know, good part of Team Good Eats. And uh, um, Ellison was playing Legacy. He played Miracles. Um, The Jeskai version, Splashing Red just for Pyroblast. And then Hess played um, Arclight Phoenix. Is it Arclight Phoenix? So how did y'all land on those three decks? And let's just go Standard, Modern, and Legacy real quick. Sure. With Standard, I was playing a lot of Standard on Arena as I was grinding to Mythic. And I was playing a lot of decks that weren't Mono Blue Tempo. Like, I was testing a lot of different things. I was trying at a lot of different kinds of archetypes and trying to find something that I liked that was going to push me away from Mono Blue Tempo with me thinking that that was the default. And Mm -hmm. then I started playing some more with Mono Blue Tempo after kind of going on that journey. And then I just kept winning and just kept winning and just kept winning. And then I went from, like, Diamond 4 all the way to Mythic with losing, like, three games. Like, the deck is just really good, really consistent. And I kept having games where I felt in the game that I was way behind and that there was no way I could ever win, and I almost conceded and then won those games. And like seeing that happen over and over again with the deck really pushed me to like, okay, I need to be putting more time into that. And then you and I had a long playtesting session where I was just playing Mono Blue Tempo as like trying to help you make deck selections for your team. And so I was just playing that deck as like a uh, uh, gauntlet deck. Yeah, And same thing, like the results just continue to be good. And it's like, okay, well, I probably need to be just putting more time into this leading up to the event and stop trying to find something else. Awesome. Okay, so how did y'all land on Arclight Phoenix for Modern? Because that deck had, obviously has a very big target on its back. It does. Uh, but similarly, the deck is very powerful and very consistent at what it is that it's doing. It was also a deck that Ellison and I both had an extreme amount of familiarity with. And so since we were going to be on either side of Hess... That if there were situations where we had to jump in and help, it was a deck that we knew that we could jump in and help effectively because we had a lot of experience with the deck. Um, And so that was something that did kind of tip us in that direction. Uh, We also considered Amulet Titan, which is something that we would have played for the event, but we honestly had card availability issues as far as building a second copy of Amulet Titan. Yeah. I was going to say, Hess is uh, testing for Mythic Championship London. So he he wants to play Amulet as of right now, I think. It's kind of all still up in the air, but uh, since we didn't have enough copies of Amulet Titan, it was seemed like a good time to get testing in with Arclight Phoenix. So yeah, not only just to get testing yeah. in, but also if you end up not playing it, like that deck is going to be heavily represented in the modern metagame, particularly at Mythic Championship London. And a good way to just get additional familiarity is just to play with a deck through an event, and so that you know the types of things that you were sweating when you had the deck, and then that can establish choke points of what, how it is you need to interact with the deck as somebody who's playing something different. 100%. Um, so how did y'all land on Miracle Splashing Red? Are you Joe Lissette? <laughs> you were Joe Lissette five years ago. <laughs> um, That's what my team did with our Legacy deck, and it worked great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did. You just played an old lands deck, Barbarian Ring Forever. But We'll get in there. Turn one Barbarian Wing, pass the turn. <laughs> um, we had gone back and forth between a few different Delver variants. And had tested those and tested those. And, you know, then we would get off of that and be like, Miracles is the deck. Miracles is the deck. We think there's going to be a lot of Delver. And the Miracles matchup against Delver is very favorable for Miracles. Um, and then a new Delver deck would <laughs> would uh, 5-0 a league. And then Ellison would be back on testing a Delver deck. And then that wouldn't go particularly well because of Miracles. And we would come back to it. But we thought that Delver 
uh, was going to be a deck that was heavily played. We thought that Miracles was going to be a deck that was heavily played. And so we wanted to have access to Pyroblast because of the amount of blue that we anticipated to see uh, at the event. And so the Red Splash, we figured, was a relatively low cost in order to have that additional edge when looking at those interactions, and particularly in the Miracles Mirror. Mm, okay, a couple of just one-mana win-the-wars type of card. Right, yeah, and just having that kind of uh, thing we thought was going to be important. Um, I ended up playing that same deck at the Classic uh, the next day, and and that's kind of the way it played out. I mean, I played against Izzet Delver three times, and I beat them all three times and, and relatively easily um, because I think that it is a really favorable matchup for the Miracles player. Awesome, great. Well, yeah, that's your Legacy Minute <laughs> uh, I know a lot of people want us to talk about legacy. It's a format, so there you go. That's what we got in there. So, how did the tournament go? Give us kind of the rundown, everything, and let's kind of keep moving on there. Uh, sure. I, you know, we started off uh, fairly well. Um, we were XO I, I, either after round three or round four. I, I can't really remember. I think it was three. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we were doing well. Had a lot of really close games uh, as the mono blue player against. I played against Saltai. I played against Mono Red. I played against Esper Control. Um, I, I played against uh, Nexus, uh, blue green Nexus. And then I played against Team of Reclamation twice with no Nexus, um, which was a deck that wasn't admittedly super on my radar leading into the event. I played against a lot of the like Nexus versions, but the like mid rangey version without Nexus was something I did not expect to be as heavily played as it was. Um, Interesting, but it, it, I ran into it twice, and I saw it around a lot, and I heard a lot of people talking about it. Um, yeah, that was one that was like pretty big on Twitter, like going into it, right? Like and we uh, made some concessions in our deck for it, and I saw that there were some things, there were some polls talking about like Nexus or no Nexus in Teamer, but I really didn't expect it to be like as adopted as quickly as it was. That people were like, yeah, off a of Nexus and Teamer, they were just all in on Niv Mizzet, and, and then that was it. Um, there were a lot of really tight games, a lot of really interesting things. Um, I think that Mono Blue performed really well against the field, um, beating most of the decks that I was against. I did lose both of the matchups that I had against Esper Control, um, which was a tough matchup, and it was close, and they were always kind of one card away, either direction of it being a difference in the game, but it was tough. Uh, I think that those matchups are really like skill-intensive overall. And you have to be really careful as the mono blue player in order to pull it out. And I probably didn't do as well as I could have in a couple of those games. Um, mm. I did have a weird situation come up against Niv-Mizzet in the final round of the day uh, that I think is probably worth talking about. Where my opponent slammed a Niv-Mizzet and I had a... Uh, what's the unblockable blue guy? Merfolk Trickster. No, not Merfolk no, Trickster. Not the Herald... Uh, Herald uh, Mist Cloak Herald. Mist Cloak Herald, okay. So I had a Mist Cloak Herald in play with two curious, curious Obsessions on it. And they played Niv-Mizzet. And I had two Essence Captures in my hand. And I should have just cast both of them against the uncounterable Niv-Mizzet just to put counters on my guy. And had I done that, I likely would have won that game. Um, but instead of using that just as a pump spell, instead they just rotted in my hand and I didn't do anything with them. And I knew it as soon as I said Resolves that I shouldn't have done it. And so what happened instead is then he didn't cast Crushing Canopy the next turn twice to blow up both of my Curious Obsessions and kill my guy, uh, which he would not have been able to do or had the ability to do had I just put counters on my guy in order to make sure that it stays alive. Gotcha. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then the other matchups, there was a lot of the... the it's tough for me to speak to the Legacy matchups because it yeah. was on the other side of the table that I couldn't see. Um, the modern matchups were pretty interesting. Um, a lot of Arclight... There were a lot of mirrors. Um, the it, I saw some main deck echoing truths in Arclight, which was uh, mm -hmm. something that came up pretty well in the mirror. It was interesting. There was also a lot of discussion uh, in our car as to what the removal spell in the flex spot should be, whether or not it was Flame Slash or Twisted Image, or uh, you know, echoing truth is also a consideration. We ended up landing on Flame Slash for the event, and it was something that we were happy to have access to throughout the course of it. Um, and overall, I think the deck performed really well and was really consistent, even with as big a target as it has on its back, because it's a deck that it's hard to hate out. Yeah, it really is. Uh, the deck is very consistent and very powerful just all around. So are you, are you happy with the, the choice to play Arclight Phoenix? Do you think that was the right deck for the weekend? 
I think it was a very good deck for the weekend. I, I was happy that we did it. I don't think that it was a wrong choice. I think that Amulet Titan would have also been a very good choice. I think either one would have been quite good, and I still think that Dredge could have also been a good choice. Uh, Hess is just never going to play Dredge. <laughs> it's just never going to be a thing that happens. Sure, I, I think Dredge was like a not great call for what it's worth, but that's my opinion. I mean, people, Abe Corrigan, uh, top eight of the tournament playing Dredge, so, you know, what do I know, right? Yeah, I know that we <laughs> yeah. had that discussion last week, right? Like we, yeah. We, um, I, I'm always going to be a little bit more pro Dredge probably than you are. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I just it's it's harder and harder to convince me to play dredge these days. So yeah, but Arclight performed very well. I think I, I was happy with I was happy with all three deck choices for the tournament, and I was also happy with Ellison and and Hess. I think that we all played well. Um, ended up X four on day one, which is not the result that we were looking for, but that's the way that it goes. Uh, but I think that overall we played well, played tight, and just had a couple of things that didn't go our way on on particular turns. And you know, but I would have run it back. And would have been happy. All right. Well, uh, since you're done with that, Trey, I guess we'll just hop right into mine here. And uh, we'll just start with standard and work our way down since um, that seems like the best way to do it. And so we started off with Teresa. Originally, Teresa wanted to play green-white tokens because our friend Ethan Gajowski said it was really good. And then Zachary Keeney got top eight for the Mythic Invitational uh, playing green-white tokens. And I was playing the deck, and I was pretty meh on it to be honest it was definitely a deck that was like good or whatever but i wasn't super impressed with what was going on so for me it was more like well if teresa's happy playing the deck i'd rather teresa be happy and confident than me be super happy because it's teresa playing standard not me so teresa got on and played some of the green white tokens deck and then realized that she hated it pretty quickly uh, not that she just hated it but she just didn't enjoy it and she played against White Darby, was actually playing the Jun Chain Whirler deck, which was something she had played in the past, which is basically like the Gruel deck, sort of, with Fine Finale and maybe some Duresses, depending on what you want to do. So I said, Teresa, well, we had this Gruel deck. I think it's really good. I kind of walked in the uh, Diamond playing it from Platinum. I lost only three matches, and two of them were to Nexus. And I think we can make this deck better, uh, or we can work on some of the problems that you have with it, I should say. And then we started playing the Gruel deck, and Teresa really liked it. And she got, you know, four or five matches in with the Gruel deck. And then uh, me and her spent four-ish hours, I think. Maybe it was three hours on Thursday before the SCG. And we played some games together and kind of talked through some lines. And then me and her jammed three sets against Esper Control because she was really afraid against it, afraid of it and hadn't played against it yet. So we played and she actually went one-two against it, but I drew like insanely well. So it was funny thing where it's like, no, Teresa, you almost won all those games, and I drew like a monster. Like, don't feel down about the matchup. But she was still down about it. And we made some changes to the deck to try and help Esper because Teresa was afraid of Esper. So we tried to make changes that helped against Esper and Team Reclamation since it seemed to be a hot thing. And it's a matchup where you uh, lose game one a lot, and then game two and three you have to win those. And with Cinder Vines you normally can, but we actually added uh, a couple of cards to the sideboard to help both matchups. So the first way had Sorcerer Spyglass. Um, Sorcerer Spyglass is really good at stopping Search for his Conta, which is really what the Team of Reclamation deck leans on in order to win. That's how they, like, in my opinion, that's how that they'll normally, like, take over. Like, Niv-Mizzet wins the game or whatever, but as Conta lets them find their nexuses, if they're doing that, or find their spot removal and that kind of thing. So keeping them off that is very powerful. And against Esper, you know, same same uh, rule of thumb there with as Conta and Teferi. And you just name whichever one's scarier at the moment. Um, so we added two of those, and we added a Carnage Tyrant. I think the Carnage Tyrant should have just been another Planeswalker looking back on it. But at the time, we wanted something that was hard to answer on another axis for the control decks. Since we did have two Domri and two Karn post-board in our main deck, Carnage Tyrant was a card that demanded Kaya's Wrath only, as like the only way to really answer it. Um, so we ended up playing... Uh, one Carnage Tyrant, we never really drew it against, or, or played it, I guess I should say, against Esper Control. I think it would have been good if we drew and play it, but I think just playing the third Dahmer or the third Karn would have been better. Um, some people asked why we didn't play Vivian. The main reason is with the mana base having three unclaimed territories, you don't actually have that much green. You have 11 green sources, four and four on the normal lands, and then three gold guild gates. So casting Vivian on five is sort of a problem. 
And post-board, we're also, our new game plan had us adding in some extra non-creature spells in the form of Sorcerer's Spyglass. So I wasn't super big on having a Vivian read. I don't want to go too much in depth on the Gruul deck because the Constructed Criticism uh, constructed criticism on the network did a whole episode with John Stern and Seth Manfield, and they talked about a lot of different things. So the only real difference between uh, our deck and the deck that I think the main one they talked about is we had Karn main deck, they had Domri. And they had one drops in their deck, so Domri is much better when you have one drops because it lets you play Domri as a four drop. Otherwise, you have to play Domri as a five drop because you don't want to play Domri in minus in a lot of matchups where the minus isn't good. You don't want to play a Planeswalker and just put it to five loyalty uh, and like the mana kind of gets wasted, right? Like sometimes you do that or whatever, but you much rather actually have it impact the game. So it ends up playing like a five drop where you like you play it and then tick up and use the mana for something. So that was it. Uh, I guess I'll talk about uh, Teresa's tournament real quick. Uh, she she played against a lot of monocolor decks. In fact, she only played against uh, four decks that weren't monocolor between round one and uh, the the quarterfinals. I'm sorry, the semifinals. Um, Teresa played against two Esper controls. One was Edgar in the finals, and one was Daryl Ayers. Not Daryl. I'm sorry. <laughs> got that so wrong. Daryl's Edgar's teammate, Daniel Fournier. Sorry about that. A little tired. Uh, in day one. And then she played against one Sultai deck, and she played against one blue-green turns deck. And she beat all of those decks. And in fact, Teresa's only losses were once to Mono Blue. I'm sorry, I think it was twice to Mono Blue and three times... To, no, yeah, it was twice to Mono Blue and three times to Mono Red. She actually, I think, just got very unlucky in Mono Red. It's a matchup that I've found to be generally favorable, as long as they don't dump your whole hand and play an Experimental Frenzy. And all of her opponents did that in the Swiss, and she mulliganed in all those games. So it's a little unfortunate there, but hey, you know, things worked out for the best still. Um, and then in the finals, we had an unfortunate, or the quarterfinals, we had an unfortunate uh, thing there. But I'm sure we'll talk about that more later. And I keep saying the quarters. I mean the semis. Sorry, I'm very tired. Um, besides that, we played against a lot of mono blue and a lot of mono white, and we beat all of uh, those decks except the first round she played against mono blue. And I think... We could have played that game better, um, but I was super focused on my game, and the lines were very hard, and I think Teresa took a good line, but just kind of got punished. So that happens sometimes. Mono Blue can be very tricky. Um, I think like she lost in 3-2, so it's not even like she got crushed or anything. Um, and that was kind of her tournament experience. I'm very happy with the Gruel Aggro deck. I think the deck's great. I think it's super well-positioned if you're playing with a lot of monocolor decks. And I think there are things you can do to help fix the Esper and Sultai matchup. I think the Esper matchup is favored them game one by like a pretty good margin, like 60-40 type thing. And then post-board, with the changes we have and the suggested change of adding another Planeswalker, I think it gets a little bit closer while still favored them. They have to bring in creatures, and sometimes you just have your random lightning strikes that answer their creatures, where you have the Cruel Harpooner to answer their Lyra, for example, where they're uh, Thief of Sandy. And when you do that and you already have a board and they tapped out, you can really start to take over the game uh, pretty quickly from that point onward. So let's talk about um, my experience. Let's talk about my experience with uh, Amulet Titan then since I experienced those rounds uh, personally so I can go a little bit more in depth into things. So I decided to play Amulet Titan for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's... Uh, I, we went over this, uh, I believe it was the last episode where we did the top five decks in Modern, um, in our opinion. And I believe Amulet Titan in a vacuum is the most powerful deck in Modern. I think it does the most powerful thing all the time. Now, the Arclight Phoenix deck has some of the most best results because A, I think it's a little easier to play, uh, and B, it has so many cantrips that it never has non-games. And that is a big problem of Amulet Titan, is sometimes your deck just doesn't work. I got a lot of losses um, against Arclight Phoenix this weekend, well... I guess we'll talk about that more in a little bit. But my losses to Arclight Phoenix, a lot of them were like, well, if I draw a bounce land, I win. And if I don't, I can't win. And, you know, that is something that happens with the uh, Amulet Titan deck that doesn't really happen to the Arclight Phoenix deck because Arclight Phoenix plays, you know, 20 cantrips or whatever, right? They just see so much of their deck so often, it's so hard for them to not find what they're looking for. So that's a very powerful edge for Arclight Phoenix. And it's part of why I think it's succeeding so well is it does its game plan every single time. Uh, but I have really liked Amulet Titan. I like the way it plays. I think it rewards my kind of play style of figure out like a, an overarching game plan and then execute on that game plan. And I think Amulet Titan does that. And once you kind of start to learn matchups, it becomes a lot easier to play around what your opponent's doing. And I think Amulet Titan um, 
is a deck that the more you put into it, the more it gives to you. And I'm nowhere close from being a master of the deck or anything like that, you know. Uh, I think Nick Prince tweeted something like uh, Amulet King, like, as a joke um, about when, I, when we made top four because I beat Daryl Arrows in the Amulet Mirror. But I, it's more of, like, I'm an Amulet Herald. Like, I think the deck's really good, and I think you should pick it up, and I think you're doing yourself a disservice if you like those kind of decks and you're not playing Amulet Titan. I don't think Amulet Titan's for everyone. I think some people just don't like that style of gameplay, but it's a gameplay that I think is honestly very good and... For lack of a better term, I think the deck is just busted. And I'm going to continue to play Amulet Titan as long as they let me. Or as long as it's reasonable in the metagame. You know, if there's like a bunch of main deck Blood Moon, D-Sphere, Surgical Extraction decks or whatever, Extirpate, you know, maybe I won't play Amulet Titan. But for the most part, I'm going to try and stick to Amulet Titan for the foreseeable future. The deck is just so powerful. And the, the meme of no bad matchups is sort of true because, you know, any bad matchup, you can just turn two or three of them. And... There's not a whole lot even bad matchups can do about that. So for me, I made a couple changes to my Amulet Titan deck. So the one that I won the IQ with two weeks ago was really targeted at making sure you don't lose the Bolt and Gut Shot by having all the extras Wayward Sword 2s and Corsures in your main deck. Um, and I had no White Splash. So for this event, I wanted to try the White Splash and see how it went. And the Coalition Relic really is a great way to beat Blood Moon. So having Coalition Relic as a way to stop Blood Moon decks was super appealing to me, and I wanted to try that. And then the path seemed good. Now, I actually never just drew any of my white cards all weekend. I basically played a deck that was, like, no white cards. I, I drew my one Rookthar that I played in my deck. I didn't even pack for it. I just drew it more than I drew my paths, which I had, like, three of in my deck, which is kind of funny. But we'll get to that in a second. So the one change I did make is I cut a Celestial Sanctuary and added a Gruel Turf. That was to make my EEs a little bit better to get another color on them. And it was also to play Rookthar on the sideboard. Because I felt like Rookthar plus Consulate Crackdown was enough to beat all of the um, War Prison decks. Because I figured they might adapt to Consulate Crackdown. But if I put Rookthar in as well, it's very hard for that deck to actually win the game. They can only afford to cast so many spells at a certain point. And I've liked Rookthar against a lot of other matchups. And it's part of my plan against things. Like, if you stick an early Rookthar against... Uh, Amulet, I'm sorry, against Arclight Phoenix as Amulet Titan, that's generally going to be game over because they won't be able to get back their Arclight Phoenixes. And if they play a Crackling Drake at that point, it probably won't be big enough to actually kill your Rookthar. So they're going to have to like cast in spells and trade off multiple things to kill the Rookthar. So I've liked Rookthar a lot. It also just randomly punishes some weird decks in the format. And I've had liked having access to it. So I trimmed a path for the Rookthar. And then I probably should have played Tragic Arrogance. It was a tech I didn't have, but Daryl did for Consulate Crackdown. So going forward, if you want to play this deck, I would suggest trading out Consulate Crackdown for Tragic Arrogance. Because Tragic Arrogance is very good at answering uh, the War Prison deck while also being passable against the Humans and Spirit matchup. Which is a matchup that you'll encounter from time to time as long as like having random applications and you know, the fringe decks of the format, right? Like if you play against Death and Taxes or whatever, having a way to clear their board is super impactful. So that was kind of where I'm at. Uh, the first round I played against Blue-White Control. It was pretty basic. So one thing I, I've taken away is that, like, the how well you know the matchup really determines that matchup. And I think if both parties know it super well, Amulet's favored. I felt like my opponent hadn't played the matchup a whole bunch. And I was able to win 2-0 there. I played against Arclight in the next round, and from that point, it wasn't, you know... I, I guess a better way to do this is kind of talk about the the decks that I battled against and not really the order. So I played against three control decks. I played against Blue-White round one, and I played against Blue-White in round seven, and I played against Jeskai in round eight, uh, with which Jonathan Sinukic, I believe is the correct way to say that. And the Jeskai and Blue-White in the later rounds, I lost because I felt like they were more experienced, and I had learned bad habits about what matters from playing against people that hadn't played against Titan a bunch, and my opponents had played against Titan a bunch, and so they were able to punish me on that. So that's a matchup that I kind of want to work on more personally going forward. It's also one where Rookthar was very nice, and bringing in Rookthar was, like, able to actually get me some extra points in that one. So that, that's another moment where I like Rookthar. I played against, uh, I guess I should count here on my phone, one, two, three, four, five uh, Arclight Phoenix decks. And I, this is funny, so I won once I won once against Arclight Phoenix, and I lost tw uh, three, I'm sorry, I played against it six times. I lost three times. No, I, I miscounted there, sorry, so. One, two, three, four, 
five, yeah. It was five times against Arclight Phoenix, six if you count Monterey. That's what I meant to say, sorry. So I lost um, twice. I won once, and then I beat the Monterey one once, and I drew twice against Arclight because the round ended beforehand. And one of the Arclights I was going to win, and one I think I was going to lose. So with that information, I would say I went two and three against Blue Red Phoenix, and I went 1-0 against the Monterey Phoenix deck. Um, Monterey Phoenix has always felt like a pretty decent matchup, so I... And also, it's starting to fall out of favor. I think the consistency of blue-red has just kind of shown that it's enough. Um, and right now, that's just kind of what matters. And against the Arclight Phoenix deck, I think I just didn't execute my game plan super well. And I also think I just... My opponents all did a really good job of knowing my game plan and interacting with me on curve. And while I had game plans for them, I like ne was never able to resolve a Hornet Queen. I was never able to draw a path to exile. So it was just really hard. I lost a lot of times just getting beat to death by an Arclight Phoenix. And I had a lot of games where it was like, they, like, stymied my draw or whatever and got to the point where if I draw Bounce Lane, I win, and I just didn't draw Bounce Lane in time. So I think I need to work on that matchup a little bit more as well. But that's one of the good things about Amulet Titan. You can put time in and get a lot out of it. Uh, and then after that, I played against Burn three times. I'm sorry, two times. Uh, three if you count it as Arclight. I know some people count Arclight Red as a Burn deck. Kind of your opinion there. Um, I lost once in our feature match in round 13, and then I beat it in the first round of day one. Um... It's actually that feature match is the first time I've ever lost to Burn, and it was a really weird game where I could either play to win over the course of two turns when my opponent was at like 27 life from all the helixes they had, um, or I could play the game for three turns, and I was at four life at the time, and I was like, well, I'm going to play to uh, get my Titan Haste here, and if they have Path, then I won't get any extra life off Crossroads because I won't get to bounce them. But if they don't have path, I buy myself enough. I buy myself basically the win. They they won't be able to stall long enough to beat me. So went for it. They had path. It was a little unfortunate, but looking back on it, I think if I just crossroads bounce crossroads, you play crossroads, then I don't have enough time to win. And that's you know you have to play to win. I think in those kind of situations. So it is what it is. Um, then I played against a bunch of one-ups. So I played against Dredge once, which is your best matchup. I played against Tron. I'm oh, sorry, I played against Tron twice um, because I played against it in the semifinals against the team that ultimately won, and he was super nice. But I played against him and Annalise for the SCG Grinder, and those games are pretty non-competitive. Um, I think you're favored, and you just go so much quicker. I played against Green Black, which I think my opponent made a small mistake and lost because of that, but... I'm of the opinion that that matchup, kind of like the Just Guy and the control matchups in general, depend a lot on how well you know the matchup. And I think my opponent was newer to it and made some mistakes, but a very nice person. I had a, very, a lot of fun playing with it, playing uh, with them, I should say, uh, in that match. Then I played against uh, Daryl Errors in the quarterfinals uh, and the Amulet Titan Mirror, which was my first time ever playing the Amulet Titan Mirror in like a matchup that like really mattered or whatever. I just never really played against it before. That's the nature of the deck. Um, and that was weird because basically game one, we both had fast hands, but I'm, I'm only going to six and he kept a seven and on his turn four, he played another coalition relic and I played a Titan. Then he drew for another turn and passed. And then I had a second Titan and you can see at that point. And then in game two, we both mulligan to five and we kind of scrapped around for a little bit. And I just drew Titan first and he picked up his cards and then Teresa beat Edgar. And we won that, um, that's kind of it when it comes to the matchups that we played against. Honestly, I played against Arclight Phoenix a lot, but I didn't play against it as much as I thought I would. And I played against no War Prison. I didn't see much. The only War Prison I saw do well was Zan Syed. And we just never got paired with Zan. So I, all the, I had all these hate cards for you know War Prison never got paired against it. But that's kind of the nature of the beast, especially a deck like War Prison, right? Like It's a deck that people are going to be slow to pick up. Because it's just, A, not fun magic in air quotes, and B, it's very hard to play. Um, while, like, some of the lock pieces are easy, in team tournaments it can be hard to get your team to let you play that kind of deck. As for the tournament itself, I guess I should talk about uh, Jeff's deck real quick. Jeff played lands. Jeff always plays lands in Legacy. Jeff did a great job. He stole a lot of matchups for us. Um, but, yeah, that's kind of it when it comes to that. And maybe we'll tell some stories here in a second. And I know that you don't want to do a whole lot of stories, but I think that it is at least worth talking about your winning in round that ended uh, in turns, because that was a pretty amazing story. Sure. So I guess I've kind of only talked about standard. So I'll, I'll go through and talk about modern real quick after this, since I guess that was kind of just a standard recap. I'm sorry this might not be what people want, but I've never had a top 
thing in Magic before. I don't always find the story super interesting, but this one I'm about to tell is pretty good. This was a, this so, is great. This is savage. Yeah. So, uh, full disclosure: in round twelve, we have a backup feature match, and in that feature match, or the backup feature match, we win, but it's reported as a loss for us. So when you watch our round thirteen feature match, you'll see that we're nine and three, and it looks like we're out of contention when we lose that. That's actually the judge's fault for like filling out the slip for us or whatever, and us just signing it while we're talking to our opponents, and they enter them entering it wrong. And then since we had a feature match, which is essentially a win and in for top eight for us, and online pairings are down, we didn't know that we only had twenty seven match points, not thirty like we're supposed to. So then when round 14 happens, about 10 minutes into the round, the head judge comes over and tells us the mistake that's happened. But since we had a feature match and the round was uh, the online pairings were down, we actually got our three points that we were supposed to have. And then the matchup that we got was actually a valid pairing because of the number of X and uh, three players there were at that point in the tournament. Um, so we actually were like... Uh, we, we had a weird double pair down type thing happen where our feature match was a pair down and that was a pair down. And if you look at the standings, our breakers are really bad. So that's all really important to tell this story. So now you now you know all that information. So you, let's fast forward. I lose my game in Modern. Uh, Jeff beats uh, Storm playing lands and wins game one and two when his Storm opponent messes up the combo. So already things are going crazy, right? We got super lucky not to like, get our three match points. Jeff just beats Storm. I had a close one against Arclight, and I lost playing Titan. And then now it's down to Teresa. So we play a really – Teresa won game one. We play a really long game two. We probably played a little sloppy and lost on a, lost some advantage on a turn and fell behind as you do against Sultai. And then going into game three, we're seven minutes. There's f- uh, five on the clock, and we have a two-minute time extension because they told us, the, hey, you're missing three match points. So we're playing, and me and Teresa are discussing the plays, and we're playing it super aggressively. And I'm saying, I'm saying the whole time, we need to win this round because if we win this round, we get to draw in the next round to top eight. And if we draw this round, um, that's like not great for us because we might not have a good enough pairing or something. Like We can maybe make top eight still, but basically we need to not lose and we really want to win. And then um, I'm also saying that like we want to play to win so that our opponents might want to concede to us. Right, because and I'm telling her this this part in private because she's like, should we play to like kill a Vivian or something? And I'm like, no, we need to play to win because our opponents are not like live for top eight most likely. So we need them to concede to us if it goes to draws, which is something that I I think if I was in their position, I probably would have scooped to the other team if it was clear if it was clear that I was going to lose. Not not like uh maybe, but like if it's clear, I would have scooped. So I, I always try to like play to win in those situations and not play for a draw because it's it could have been very easy for us to like take a very defensive approach and draw that round and play a win and in the next round. But we had a win and in now, so we play it. So after um, there's a life total discrepancy and there's a judge call that lasts about ten minutes. And in that time, everyone gathers around us, right? And that life total discrepancy actually happens in the first turn of turns. So there's no extra time for that. But we start playing. And it gets to a point where it's turn four, and our opponent plays three creatures, and they're at four life. And we have two Grove Chamber Guardians and a Chain Whirler, and both Grove Chamber Guardians are four fours. And we have a Domri in play at seven loyalty, because we've been playing our Domri to give our creatures haste to attack them, because we're just trying to kill them, and we're at 20 life. So we can never lose this game, right? Uh, and they can never win it, because they're never going to have time to hit us for any damage. So we've at least drawn this round, right? And everyone's gathered around who's in the tournament. There's like maybe 40-ish people watching us. And Teresa draws for turn and it's a mountain. And Teresa's like, dang it, we're going to lose. I'm like, no, we have to figure out a way to win this game. How are we going to win? Because we need to try to win uh, so that like our opponent might, might concede to us if we can pull far enough ahead here. And when I said that, I didn't notice this, but everyone else around me noticed that apparently our opponent gave a really big stink face to that. Like, no chance I'm ever going to concede to you here. And it's just like... Okay, all right, that's fine. That's their prerogative. They're allowed to not concede to us. And so I'm like, all right, if we minus our... Oh, so I should mention, their creature are two Cruel Harpooners and a Jaylight Ranger that's a 4-3. I say, if we minus our Domri here and we hit the last two Chain Whirlers in our deck, we kill both Cruel Harpooners and kill them. And Teresa's like, there's no way that's going to happen. I'm like, well, there's no way we're going to win if we don't minus this Domri. We just have a land in hand. So Teresa's like, okay, I'll minus the Domri. And as Teresa's minusing the Domri, first card... Goblin Chain Whirler. Second card, Ghoul Spellbreaker. Now, it turns out 
Gruel Spellbreaker wins the game because they go to three and we have haste and we kill them. The fourth card's Goblin Chain Whirler. I say slam it. Everyone goes, oh! Teresa's super excited. She puts the Chain Whirlers down. Our opponent looks defeated and makes Teresa go to attacks. We attack in and win. We hit the last, the third and fourth Chain Whirler in our deck, and boom! We're into the top eight. <laughs> it's a total <laughs> savage. Yeah. Insane. So, played, played the win only probably because we had a, a pair down. I was hopeful they would concede. And we got there in the end, and then we made it into top eight. So yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, so that's our tournament. Um, that might not have been what people expected. I'm not really. It's weird. I've never been in a position for a Magic tournament um, where I did so well. I've done well in other card games and tournaments like this, but not for Magic. So, did you like this? Let us know so that way when I top eight my next event, I'll be able to give you a better uh, episode. So leave us a, a note on Twitter.com/slash/EvenOddPod. Well, is there anything that you could say, you know, after all of this? I know we've talked about what took from this. Uh, any lessons that you learned in regards to this tournament? Um, yeah, there were a couple of lessons. So, one, I think making sure that I stay, like, calm and relaxed is something that I definitely normally am and try to do at tournaments. Um, and just, like, don't worry, like, only worry about the next game in front of you and don't really care about if you won or last, lost the last round. Just play the best you can. I think that was reinforced as a positive thing, right? It was a, it was something that I, I relearned and was, uh, for, for lack of a better term, I had positive effort, like, reinforcement in. Um, I can't think of the word right now, and for some reason my camera went dead as we're recording online, but that happens sometimes too. <laughs> mm. And, yeah, it, it was weird um, because at a team tournament, like, that really exacerbates that lesson, right? Because I lost a lot of games in a row on day two, but my team won. And I never once thought I'm letting my team down or anything like that because I was helping in the other matches too. And I thought it's a team tournament, not an individual tournament, right? So it's not like I won the round. I didn't lose the round, which I think is something that happens a lot a lot of times in team tournaments where you lose your round, right? Like your round in air quotes, but your team wins, but you're like deflated. But in reality, it's like, yo, you just won. Like you're on the way to top eight. So, right. that's one lesson for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that, that touches on a thing too of just the idea of like getting negative or or getting like uh, frustrated about something's not going to help you towards your goal, right? Like we've talked about that a lot, and so trying to maintain that attitude, like you had direct direct result as a result of that, right? Like you've got also with your team and everything else, they need you to stay calm and they need you to stay happy and so that you can also have that effect on them so that they're not feeling like there's some kind of pressure on them in regards to their games. Yeah, 100%. And then I would say it was a weird lesson. um, And I don't think there's a way to say this without coming off as cocky, but that's like not my intent. Um, I've wondered like, could I succeed on the Star City game circuit? And was I doing the wrong thing by um, playing GPs, which are harder than SCGs on average, uh, and like never playing SCGs and never working my way up the ladder, for lack of a better term, right? Because what happens with some people like BBD or Brad is like, or Jerry, is they start on the SCG tour, they really learn the fundamentals and reinforce, and then they make the jump to like the GPs. And I kind of. It's funny because it's like I said I don't want to come off cocky, but like the action I did is more cocky. Is like I shouldn't do the SCG thing. I should just jump to GPs, which I, I'm like realizing as I say it. But um, and not 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 even saying that like yeah like I can top eight all these tournaments all the time or whatever. But it was good to know like in the last two months I've had a lot of really good results when it comes to SCG events. Right, I had a top 32. I have a top four now. I won an IQ. I top eight another IQ and probably threw away a top four there. Um, and it, it was definitely a thing where it's like these all these kind of come together be like hey like you so, so sometimes you have like imposter syndrome or whatever in magic right it's a thing that I think people talk about a lot where it's like am I good am I actually working towards something am I improving and it's hard to know and results aren't the only thing that matters but it is nice to get results and it's been nice to have them back to back to back to back you know what I mean well it's validating right like that's the yeah. whole thing is that, you know, it, the the only way that you kind of get to the other side of thinking about imposter syndrome is that you have some kind of validation. And that can come in a lot of different forms. But results is certainly one of the ways that will happen. Yeah, and so it, it was just nice to have, um, I, I guess, not even validation, but, yeah, I, I guess it is just validation. But it feels like the wrong word 
What about you, Troy? That's enough about me. I've been talking for 35 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're what the people showed up to see. <laughs> I guess I guess so. I don't know. As far as, as, far as most people might have been like, oh, I love that Trey guy. And then like, oh, Mason Top Ford, not Trey. God. <laughs> yeah. For all my true fans, you can tweet me at. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> he doesn't even say it because he knows it's not true. <laughs> um. Yeah, you know, I had a, a couple of specific game situations. You know, I had talked about that with the essence captures on the Niv-Mizzet. Mm-hmm. That, like, that's something that can happen where you, like, feel like you're not getting full value on a card. And then if that card is just going to rot in your hand as you lose the game, like, using that in situations to try to cut yourself off from losing to corner cases in a game is something that is the difference a lot of the times in a match. And trying to keep those small things in mind and those small closet corner situations in mind throughout the course of a match are something that I think is is good to keep in mind, and it was something that I was reminded about certainly during that time. Um, I also it's had another... learning the lesson we've talked about, right, of slowing down? Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. And I had another situation like that in the classic, when I was playing against Show and Tell, um, where my uh, opponent had Show and Tell in an Omniscience, and I allowed it to resolve... And uh, the show and tell resolved, and then they put the omniscience in play, and I then red elemental blasted the um, omniscience in response to a grizzle brand, and then he forced that, and then with the grizzle brand on the stack, I have the ability to force the grizzle brand, <laughs> so he's just left with nothing, and um, that becomes a really interesting situation, right? That that's kind of a closet scenario, but it's like thinking through what all the different possibilities are of what's going to happen on that turn, and and being able to end up in a in a like situation where you go from like, well, I'm going to lose this game on the spot to like having a lot of other options. Awesome. It's- um, and then the other thing is, to, mine's kind of the other side of it, right? Is that I didn't have the result at the tournament that we were looking for, but at the same time, like. The team dynamic was good. We all communicated well. We all played well and never got into a situation where we had any of those stressors or anything else that were going on. Like we were able to flow through the tournament well. We were able to flow uh, through the games well. And that was encouraging because we haven't, like, as much as Hess Ellison and I have played together, we haven't really played in that dynamic before. Yeah, it's, I'm always I'm always with one of you. That's like the weird thing, right? It's like it's never been you three as the team. Right. And, and so, you know, it wasn't entirely clear how that was going to play out, but like we were all worked really well together and that was a really fun experience. And, uh, you know, I was happy with the performance that we had going through the games and also like running into the different situations where we were able to problem solve and, and get into great situations, right? Like that it's not always the result. Like I had a game against Sultai that was a great example of that with Mono Blue, where I had worked out the combat race to where I ended up going to one life and he was dead on the swing back. And instead, he top decked a land and was able to finality me and clear my board and then win, right? <laughs> so um, those things can happen, but able to like try to work through the the scenarios of that game to put it in that situation is, is things I was proud of, even though the result didn't go that way. Yeah, uh, I actually thought of one more lesson that sure. I want to talk about real quick, and it was um, a lesson relearned. It's something I learned back from the Vanguard days, but hadn't happened in Magic yet. And it, it happened with PPTQs too, but uh, just demystifying top eight, right? Because it's this thing where, like, you go to these events and tournaments, uh, you know, for lack of a better, like, there's the old Todd Anderson, right? Like, tournaments breed losers, right? He, like, made that whole article about it back in 2015. But basically, like, when you go to a tournament, there's only one winner, right? And in team tournaments, there's three winners, but there's only one winner, right? And in reality, that's not true because, like, magic's a marathon, not a race, and it's a chance to learn and do stuff. But you do just go to these events constantly and lose and lose and lose, and it's like, man, how do people like Austin Collins top eight five of these in a row, right? And it was a moment where it's like, oh, this is just how they do it. They just, like, and it's something I knew, but it was, like, got to do and actualize in magic, which is, like, they just play the rounds, they do the best they can, and things work out sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And, And it's good the other direction, too. Right, you like look at the lineup that's in the classic, and it's also still a murderer's row of people, right? <laughs> those there's a lot of people who regularly top eight those events who also didn't day two, yeah. Like, and, and so you know the the getting reminded in real time of like the how the variance of the game can play out is something that's always useful. 
Yeah, for sure. Just demystifying it, I guess, is not quite the word I want to use, but it's the one that's popping to mind. Well, Trey, uh, hopefully people like this episode. Um, I know it's maybe not what people wanted, and if you're a, a patron of the show, uh, feel free to message me on Discord, and I'll gladly go in-depth. And if you just want to message me and talk about anything when it comes to Amulet Titan, I'm glad to be an open book. Uh, I, someone tweeted that I was uh, – it was Nick Prince, uh, like, half-jokingly tweeted, like, Amulet King or whatever after I beat uh, – like, I, we made it to top four, which was a very nice gesture, Nick. But I, I joke that uh, I'm a herald of the deck. You know, I, I don't, I'm not a master or anything, but I'm just preaching the deck's great. So if you're trying to pick up Amulet Titan and you want to have some steps to the early, like, get through the early steps, feel free to slide into my DMs on Twitter at Mason E. Clark or on Facebook at Mason Clark. Trey, if someone wants to find you and ask you about how to get a hold of me, where could they do that? Whoa. Boom, <laughs> boom, boom. Been saving that one for a long time. Man. <laughs> I thought of that one like three months ago, baby. I've been waiting for a good tournament result. Pew, 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 pew. That's the highlight of my weekend. Some people might say it's the money, the top four. Nah, that dagger live. All right, keep talking. Wow. I've really, really saved that one for a long time. Okay. <laughs> um. <laughs> That was too much fun for me. The whole episode is worth that. Well, if you'd like to, uh, if you'd like to talk to a, a seasoned magic player who has a <laughs> multitude of experience and performance and results, who's not going to lose his mind and forget his friends after one top eight performance, then you can tweet I didn't at me. You. I daggered you. I remembered you, baby. <laughs> you can tweet at me at Trey MC. <laughs> If I were forgetting you, I'd have been like, who's that old guy with the beard I'm talking to? And then I'll tell you how to get into Mason's DMs. <laughs> yeah. There you go, buddy. <laughs> All right. Well, if you enjoyed this show, um, check out the rest of the network. Uh, there's Constructive Criticism, which is the flagship show of the network. Uh, they're doing great work over there. John Sir and Seth Manfield, Spencer Howland, really crushing it. And, you know, they've been going over some uh, more interesting topics recently and kind of branching out what it means to be that show. And trying some new stuff, and I've en- I've enjoyed some of it. And it's been pretty uh, exciting. They just did an episode on best of one. You know, Seth kind of talks up as I kick my table. Seth talked about some preparation he had for the Mythic Championship, so that's exciting. And I'm sure they're going to do a post Mythic Championship uh, interview when Seth loses to Autumn in the finals. Uh, make sure to also check out the rest of the shows in the network. There's Common Knowledge. Uh, it's a show all about Popper. They're doing a great job over there. Popper's really booming these days. There's more and more Popper content. Just a year and a half ago. You were almost starved for popper content, and now there's a surplus. But gotta make sure to check out the people at Common Knowledge. Would make you sure say check- that popper is popping off? No, nah, I'm too popperish for that joke. Mm. That is not even a joke. That's just a bad play. All right, I'm gonna cut all that out. Uh, <laughs> but jokes aside, um, don't forget to make sure to check out uh, the Hive Mind, which is an MTG interview talk show. He just had a cosplayer on. Who's named Ashlyn Rose just a couple weeks ago. And I think there was a bit of a delay in real life stuff. So, unfortunately, there hasn't been a new episode as far as I understand recently. But I'm sure there'll be a new one coming out soon enough. And then there's Hive Mind, MTG Down the Road. If you're busy, have a busy life, that might be a show that connects to you. So, make sure to check that one out. And make sure to roll with us next week where we have a more informative show that isn't just me talking about my tournament experience. <laughs> also, one thing, too, is that you know if you have an opportunity to leave a review on iTunes, it's something that can really help a lot with the show. Yeah, that is that is very true. Thank you for remembering that, Trey. You know, iTunes reviews, when people are checking out the show, if we lie to them and say it's good there, they're downloaded, and then they're stuck. And once we stick them, it's very easy to hold them. So Th- That's under sure the contract... <laughs> That's the contract terms with Wayfinder Travel Agency. You buy once, you're there forever. Yeah, once you click subscribe on iTunes, actually you can't unsubscribe as part of our feed. It's very m- malicious, but <laughs> sometimes it'd be like that. All right, thank you everyone and roll with us next week. So Mason, you have to tell people the real story of your tournament success, Pure Pancake Power. Tell the people what Pure Pancake Power is all about. <laughs> So, me, Jeff, and Teresa went to a brunch place before day two, and we went, and me and Jeff got these huge lemon pancakes. I mean, they're, like, bigger than, like, a person's head. They're just these ginormous lemon pancakes, and there's two of them. And Jeff's been hyping up about these pancakes all weekend. It's, like, his favorite place in Cincinnati or whatever, and he just wants these pancakes. And, like, we get there, and I eat a lot of my pancakes, but I'm just like, ugh. I can't eat any more of this pancake, right? Like, I'm going to be sick if I eat more. Um, 
and I remember joking. I said, we got a top eight to make, which would turn out to be true. And Jeff is like, well, I'm not going to leave these pancakes. So Jeff goes and gets a very small box for his large pancake. It's like a sandwich box. And he crams the pancake in there. And I remember Teresa was making fun of him saying, why don't you get a bigger box? He's like, nah, I've got this little box to keep hold of, which I guess is kind of reasonable. And then Jeff takes the syrup and pours the syrup into the box with the pancakes. So now he has like a syrupy pancake box with him and he sticks it inside his jacket. And if you want to see Jeff's ball and jacket that looks like Marty McFly meets Tempo Storm, go to the Star City Games Top 8 profile picture just to get an idea. But Jeff stuck it inside his vest and his hoodie and zipped it up and kept it right over top of his heart like he was Iron Man (laughs) all day on day two. And he got to the point where we said he wanted to take it off. I'm like, no, we're live for Top 8 because we have the pancake power. We can't decharge right now. So we top eight that event, not because we played well, not because we got lucky, because we had pancake power. Pure pancake power, baby. He had that in his shirt, even in top eight. <laughs> in the pictures, the pancake is there. It. I'm honestly impressed he never took it out. This is my favorite <laughs> thing from the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> it really was. It really was. Jeff had a lot of great moments, some we can't say on the podcast. But thank you, everyone, and uh, roll with us next week. <laughs>